0: Good morning. I'm so glad that you braved the uh, cold and dreary weather to come to church. Uh, I was fearful that we would show up today and there just wouldn't be anybody in the house, but looks pretty good to me. So I'm glad you're a part of things today. In a moment, I'm going to tell you a story from 1 Samuel chapter 15 in the Old Testament, and then we're going to springboard off of that to Philippians chapter 1. If you want to go ahead and find your place just a few months after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in 1941, a young American woman named Jules McWilliams decided that she wanted to serve her country, sacrifice for the great cause of World War II, and so she marched right down to her local army recruiting office and said, I want to join the armed forces. The man took one look at her and had one question to ask. He said, how tall are you? She was taken back by the question. She said, I'm six foot two. He said, I'm sorry, it's not going to work. You're too tall. She said, too tall? She was bewildered, somewhat frustrated. How can you be too tall? The man said, regulations, too tall, too short. You're too tall. So she marched out, walked down the street to the naval recruiting office. She walked inside, and there sat a gentleman dressed in a Navy uniform. He looked at her and said, how can I help you? She said, I want to serve my country I'm prepared to sacrifice my life for the cause of good in the world. He said, how tall are you? She said, I'm six foot two inches tall. Why does it matter? He said, you're too tall. You're too tall for the Navy. Once again, bewildered, frustrated, she left. It was only a few weeks later she actually landed a job with the CIA. Back then they called it the OSS. She was assigned to secretarial duties. For one year, she served her nation as a secretary. But she was so good at what she did, and she put her heart and soul into everything that she did that she was quickly promoted, noticed by a supervisor, and put on a special task in a laboratory at a secret hidden location. The very first day, she was nervous. She had no idea why she had been uprooted from her hometown, transported halfway across the country, new surroundings, new people, and a new job description. On the first day, he said, you're going to bake cakes. She said, bake cakes. What do you mean? How am I going to serve my country by baking cakes? He said, oh, these aren't any normal, average kind of cake. You're going to bake the most revolting, the most disgusting, the most putrid cake that a human would ever consider eating. She was puzzled. She didn't understand. She asked for further information, but the man gave her nothing. So time and time again, she followed a recipe. She tweaked the recipe herself. She had a little bit of cooking experience, but not a whole lot. Uh, She would bring her cake to the man. He would say, No, it's not revolting enough. It's not disgusting enough. The cake must be three inches in diameter. It must fit in a wire cage. You must use the following ingredients. You can change the recipe if you need, but I want to be clear half revolting isn't revolting enough. Half disgusting isn't disgusting enough. I want you to produce the most revolting, disgusting, putrid cake imaginable. Well, days turned into weeks, and time and time again, she kept failing in the opportunity. Finally, she'd had enough. She said, you've got to tell me why I'm baking these disgusting cakes. He said, have you seen the Pacific Theater, what the Japanese are doing to our ships? You realize it's a bloodbath over there. Ships are going down. Sailors are floating, clinging to life in their life vest in the Pacific Ocean. Naval airmen and Air Force pilots are being shot down over the water. And more than those shipwrecked seamen or those shot down pilots fear another pass by a Japanese zero and finishing them off, you know what they fear most? Being eaten by a shark. As they're waiting for days sometimes to be rescued by their comrades, men and women who are floating in the Pacific Ocean are living in fear that a shark is going to destroy them and tear them limb from limb. So what you're baking is actually shark repellent. And we're going to take those three-inch cakes that you're making and place them in this box. And this box then, made of wire mesh, clips to a sailor's life vest. And in the salt water, the cake begins to dissolve and it'll keep the sharks away from our soldiers. She couldn't believe what her ears were telling her, but she kept working at it until finally, finally, she had produced the most disgusting cake anyone could ever bake. That's it, the man said. You've done it. Now, surprisingly about these cakes, no one knows for sure if they actually repelled sharks. There were some promising tests, but here's what the man wanted her to understand. The cakes weren't necessarily designed to scare away sharks. They were designed to lift the morale of the soldiers. Because as soon as they had come up with shark-repellent cakes, the army wanted tens of thousands, the navy wanted tens of thousands, the air force wanted tens of thousands, all because this one woman wanted to serve her country, was willing to sacrifice for her nation in order to join the war effort. Shortly thereafter, she resigned from the CIA she met a man named Paul. Paul found out her story. He learned that she was quite handy in the kitchen. The two actually fell in love. They were married. His last name was Child, and Jules McWilliams became Julia Child. And if it weren't for Julia Child and her service for others, people like Guy Fieri would never be on the television. All those men and women on those cooking shows that my wife likes to watch throughout the week, we have two channels in our home devoted to nothing but food and cooking, and none of them would exist. Cooking shows for entertainment purposes would never have existed were it not for that six foot two, kind-hearted woman with a servant's nature. We're going to talk today about service, more specifically sacrifice. Our series is titled New Me, and New Me is not about New Year's resolutions. New Me is about real life change. Hear me, church. It is not an overstatement to say that this could be your year. 2023 could be the year. Finally, you lay down that destructive habit. Finally, you strengthen your marriage and build your home. Finally, you get your health in shape and in check. Finally, you get your finances balanced and relieve the financial pressure that so many live under. In 2023, you could be a better you. You could become a better person, but you have to see it first. We've been using as our framework a list of four kinds of people from the leadership guru, Dr. John Maxwell. In his book, Developing the Leader Within You, he says there are basically four kinds of people. There are some people who never see it. Regardless of what it is, they never see it. We call them wanderers. There are people who see it, but they never go after it. They never pursue it. We call them followers. Then there are people who see it and pursue it. We call them achievers. And Then finally, there are those who see it, they pursue it, and they help other people see it. We call them Leaders. Now, each week, I've addressed one of these four kinds of people and tried to reveal to you what that person needs in order to engage their faith walk and move ahead. In week one, we talked to the wanderers. Wanderers don't even see it. Wanderers lack vision. And hear me, church, every significant consequence in your life, every consequence or circumstance of consequence in your life demands vision. If you can't see it, you're never going to achieve it. If you can't see a deeper faith walk, if you can't see a happier, healthier you, if you can't see a stronger home, if you can't see a more united family, you're never going to achieve it. Because in this life, we only see what we're prepared to see. And if we're not prepared to see it, most likely we won't see it. And if we don't see it, we'll never achieve it. Last time in week two, we addressed the followers. Followers can see it, they can see a circumstance or a goal of great significance, of great value, they're just not motivated to go after it. That's what followers need. They need motivation. Last time we noted the worthy motivations and the unworthy motivations to following Jesus Christ. Today we're going to talk to the achievers. Some people see it, whatever it is, they pursue it, they go after it, and most likely they achieve it. I'm looking at an auditorium filled with achievers. I know so many of you, coaches, teachers, business people, parents, you work hard at what you do. You know how to see it, and you know how to go and get it. However, there's something very, very dissatisfying for people who make it to the top. They achieve the goal, but then they look around and they realize they're all alone. You see, it's one thing to be an achiever and receive the accolades, the glory that comes with reaching a goal. Someone pats you on the back, someone applauds you, someone chants your name, but it's a whole different ball game to not only achieve it, but to bring somebody along with you. That's what so many of you are good at. Coaches, teachers, again, business people, parents, I know you, I know your circumstance. This is what you're good at. You see, loneliness is a way of life for many people, specifically for many achievers. They've been so committed for so long to reaching their goal that they've neglected the relationships around them. If you've made it to the top and you've separated yourself from the pack, but you've brought no one along for the ride... That's a lonely position to be in. I think it's because we're wired for love. Even the most hardcore male-dominant person in this room is still wired for love. God wired you for love. God imprinted upon your DNA love. Dr. Gary Chapman in the five love languages says we're all born, psychologically speaking, with a love tank, right? Even a child of one year or two years old, they've got a love tank. They're naturally inclined to give love. They want to give love, and they want to get love. Without love, achievement, accomplishment, means nothing. You see, it can be frustrating when we can't connect with other people and speak that language of love. And then you got to consider difficulties, and everyone is going to face difficult seasons in their lives. Everyone is going to come in contact with difficult circumstances, trials and tribulations, according to James chapter 1. And when we find ourselves going through these tough times, sometimes we expect what's unrealistic from the people around us. We left them in the dust as we were trying to achieve our goal. But then when we hit the wall and when we needed someone, we left them far behind and we get frustrated that no one's coming to our aid. You see, difficulties do not automatically bring friends. That's why fellowship, community, companionship is so important in the local church. Biblical community, I mean true biblical community, being connected to other people is invaluable to a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, fellowship is one of the five principles upon which this church and frankly every church should be founded. Nobody wants to work at friendship. The Bible says that the person who has friends is the person who's demonstrated themselves friendly. Look, I- I've got to be honest with you and just share something, get it off my chest, bugs me to no end. When f- It's terribly ironic, especially when I explain it in a moment. Somebody walks through that door, brand new people attend this church every weekend. I'm meeting new families every weekend. The church is growing. That's fantastic. Love it. When someone walks through the doors of this church, and they themselves are a pretty friendly person, I'm not saying they're the life of the party. I'm just saying they'll look people in the eye. They'll speak to people, shake hands. When Chris stands and says, hey, turn around and shake hands with your neighbor, that's exactly what they do. Those are the kind of people that come to me later and say, I got to tell you something. I really like this place. It seems real. People are friendly. But then there are other people. They walk in the door for the first time, and as you get to know them, you realize they're just not friendly. They sit in the back in the corner all by themselves. Chris says, stand, turn around, shake a hand, greet your neighbor, and they wait for someone to come to them. They're here for a while, and eventually they kind of burn out on it. They leave, and you know what they tell me? It's not a very friendly church you've got there. Come on. The Bible says plainly, if you're a person who's going to have friends, you have to first demonstrate yourself friendly. Sometimes when we're in the darkness, when we're struggling to hold on, it is grossly unrealistic of what we expect from other people. You cannot blame other people for not knowing what you're going through because you've never connected yourself to anyone. That's why I think there are a hundred or more one another passages in the Bible. Did you know that? Bible verses, principles, examples, role models throughout the Old Testament and the New of one another-ness. Love one another. Serve one another. Be compassionate toward one another. Be hospitable to one another. Help one another. The list goes on and on and on. One of the most underrated and ignored qualities of spiritual maturity in my estimation is sacrifice, what we're talking about today, service, loyalty to people around us. The Bible says that Jesus is a friend that sticks closer to us than a brother. Now think about that for a moment. The Bible says that our creator can be a friend who will stick closer to us than even a brother. That is unheard of in other world religions. Allah is not your friend, trust me. The Hindu gods, they're not your friends. The ancient Greek and Roman gods, they weren't interested in being your friend. And yet the scripture says, Jesus Christ can be a friend to us who sticks closer than a brother. That's pretty powerful when you think about it. A great example of that kind of friendship and the sacrifice in that kind of friendship is the Old Testament relationship between David and Jonathan. Now, I'm sure you probably know about David. David killed Goliath, brought down the giant... But you might not know so much about Jonathan. Jonathan was the king's son. Saul, being the first king of Israel, had a son. His firstborn son was named Jonathan. Jonathan and David became close friends, allies really, companions uh, actually. and their story is told in First Corinthians beginning in, I mean, First Samuel beginning in verse 15. God had rejected Saul. He had chosen David. That's first Samuel chapter 15 and 16. You remember the story? God sends his prophet Samuel to the household of Jesse to pick the new king. God's rejected Saul. Saul's not going to make it. Samuel go to the household of Jesse. One by one he lines up his sons. The king isn't there. But he has one more, the youngest. He's about 14 or 15. He's out in the field tending the family sheep. His name is David, and he's the next anointed king. Now, it would take 15 years for David to actually become the king. During that 15-year period, God was preparing David for something exceptional. You see, David not only brought down the mighty Goliath, David to this day among Jews is the most revered and honored king in all of Israel's history. In 1 Samuel 17, David kills Goliath. His popularity skyrockets through the roof. Everybody knows the name David. He brought down Goliath. In fact, when David would enter a new town, the ladies would line the streets and they'd start chanting his name. You're so big and strong. (laughs) This made Saul the king incredibly jealous. Oh, he's angry. He actually sets out to kill David. But then in chapter 18... David and Jonathan become friends. Imagine this. The rejected king's son, who is next in line for the throne, becomes best friends with God's anointed and chosen king, David. 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 through 4. Jonathan became one in spirit with David. That's tight. He loved him as himself. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David. That's a symbolic gesture. The kingly garment. He was next in line for the throne. He takes it off. He gives it to David along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. David was recognized by Jonathan as God's anointed. David was chosen by God and Jonathan knew it. And so Jonathan makes the sacrifice not to fight David for the throne. In chapters 18 and 19, Saul tries to kill David three times. Now, when David was chosen by Samuel, they actually brought him to the palace to live with the king's family. David was quite a musician. He could play a multitude of instruments. And the king would assign David, just play, play, play some music, entertain the king. But after David's rise in popularity, the king got so angry that twice in chapter 18, the king saw David at the end of the hallway in the palace, picked up his spear, and threw it at David. I'll pin him to the wall, Saul said. David, of course, is young and agile like I used to be. And he avoids it. Finally, once again in chapter 19, he tries but fails. And in chapters 19 and 20, Jonathan then has to make a choice and he chooses to ally himself with David. You see, Jonathan and David had met secretly in the palace or on the palace grounds for years, strategizing and planning, actually trying to keep David alive, frankly. Finally, Jonathan convinces David, you've got to go. You've got to get out of here. My dad's out to kill you. First Samuel chapter 20, verse 41. David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. The two men wept. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. David then left, and Jonathan went back to the town. Here's the big idea, and nobody, in my opinion, illustrates it greater than Jonathan in 1 Samuel. The big idea. Personal sacrifice brings others along. And it enables them to be used of God as well. You see, if you're an achiever, man, I'm proud of you for doing what you do, for accomplishing, reaching your goal. But it's personal sacrifice that brings others along, enables them to be used of God as well. Did you notice when I read, David bows down before Jonathan three times? They're both weeping. Why? Why? because David recognized Jonathan's sacrifice. Jonathan could have made David's life incredibly difficult, even more so than it actually was. Jonathan could have fought him every step of the way for the throne, but he didn't. And David is so overwhelmed. You see, God used Jonathan's sacrifice as a friend to David to keep David alive and prepare him for the throne. And at this point, you you realize Jonathan is David's superior in position as well as rank. Unfortunately, Jonathan would never see his best friend take the throne because at the end of chapter 31, we learned that Saul and all of his sons were killed in battle. You see, this is what achievers need. They need others. If you're an achiever, you got to remember, this is what you need And again, I look around an auditorium of this size and I know so many of you, especially you coaches and teachers, business people, parents, you get it. You understand that reaching the goal all by yourself isn't nearly as satisfying as bringing other people with you. Jonathan recognized and respected David as God's anointed. He knew it. You see, it's my responsibility of leader in this church To do the same with my staff. You see, how short sighted would I be as a minister if I assumed the only one in this church that God works through is me, the leader? That'd be ridiculous. You see, I am called of God as a leader and achiever to serve my staff, to sacrifice for my staff, to make sure I'm not the only one marching toward the goal, make sure I'm encouraging and assisting and helping and aiding others to march alongside me. That's what leaders do. G. Campbell Morgan wrote, let us gladden his heart by such intimate friendships that through us he may be able to do what he desires for this sad and needy world. Personal sacrifice, unfortunately, can be a hard pill to swallow. Typically in our culture, achievers aren't into it. When an achiever reaches a goal, that's reason to celebrate the achiever, not be concerned about who or what you brought along for the ride. To sacrifice is to give up something that is rightfully mine. And typically, achievers just aren't into that. I've worked too hard to build this company. I've worked too hard to focus this team. I've worked too hard to accomplish my goals. I want you to remember, very often in this book, The Bible links sacrifice with blessing. Almost always in this book, when someone sacrifices, they're blessed. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, we must be willing to endure hardship to enter the kingdom of God. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows into other lives. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when the glory is revealed. You see, according to God, pain brings gain. Remember when we used to say that? Maybe that's too old school for some of you. I grew up wearing t-shirts, no pain, no gain. Remember that? No pain, no gain is what got me through those grueling two-a-days in the heat of August down in Florida preparing for football season. No pain, no gain. Your guts are churning. You've already thrown up three times. You've drank gallons of water. Your lungs are burning. No pain, no gain. You lay down under way too much weight. Thank God you got a spotter. And you're driving that weight to the ceiling. And the guy above you says, no pain, no gain, man. And all of a sudden you dig deep in here, right? Believe it or not, according to this, God always produces gain from our pain. Simply put, if your life is without some measure of sacrifice, you may be achieving, but it's going to be without blessing. Look with me at Philippians chapter 1 go through the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians Galatians Ephesians Philippians chapter 1 when Paul wrote this letter he was sitting in a Roman prison a dark damp dingy dungeon in Rome Paul had set up a church in the Macedonian area of Greece in the city of Philippi and now a year or so later he writes them this letter to check on them and answer some of their questions and concerns. Look at chapter 1 and verse 12. Paul writes, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. What's he talking about? He's talking about his trip to Rome, his journey to Rome, he's arrested, he's brutalized, and now he's in prison. That's what's happened to me, but it's actually served to advance the gospel. Here's why. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Wow, what a perspective. Paul saw his sacrifice, not as a sacrifice for the church at Philippi per se, but as an offering to Christ, and so should you. Look, let me be very transparent with you. I'm not real good at this. I try hard. I'm not real good at this. Because people tend to frustrate me when they move too slowly. People tend to frustrate me when they don't get it as quickly as I think they should get it. I had one of my staff members tell me a few weeks ago, "Uh, Mike, now, wait a minute. My brain doesn't go as fast as yours when we're talking about this, and it was like a slap in the face. I had to be reminded that if I reach the goal, but I'm all by myself, I haven't brought anyone with me, what good is it? Paul is sitting in jail, and Paul understands I'm not in jail for others per se. I am in jail for Christ. This is my offering. So when I'm patient, when I slow down, when I give someone a second and a third opportunity to prove themselves, I'm modeling Jesus Christ. It is actually an act of worship on my part. Keep reading. Verse 14. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord, and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear, In other words, like Jonathan in the Old Testament, Paul's sacrifice was being used of God to enable other people to be greatly used of God. Then in verses 15, 16, and 17, Paul highlights the opposition. You see, as soon as Paul got arrested, there were some sly, crafty, charlatan-type ministers who moved in on the church and motivated by their own selfish gain, trying to build a name for themselves, they told the church, hey, Paul is so sinful He is so far from God that, look, God is chastening him, and he's thrown him into jail. But watch how Paul even responds to that, verse 18. What does that matter? What does that matter? So what they're saying that. So what they're doing that. What does that matter but the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is being preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I'm sure of it. Paul understood that on, on one hand you have the sacrifice and in the other you get the blessing. On one hand, there's the pain, but on the other hand comes the gain. Now watch verses 20 and 21. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Watch verse 21, world-famous verse. Here it comes. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ. It's about Jesus. To die is gain. Just like Jonathan, Paul's concern was not really what was going to happen to him, but what kind of testimony would be left for his Lord. And who would go with him on the journey? You see, an achiever's sacrifice is what enables other people to be used of God. It's when an achiever is patient, makes time, is considerate, gives another opportunity or a chance. That's what enables others to be greatly used of God. Jonathan demonstrated that principle, and so did Paul. Look, the list throughout your Bible of people who sacrifice to bring others along is lengthy. You can start with Abraham pretty easily. Go to Joseph. you got Rahab, the prostitute. You've got Elijah, the prophet. You've got Moses, of course, You've got Esther, the queen. You've got Solomon. You've got Barnabas in the New Testament. Man, the list just goes on and on and on. The Bible is filled with examples of sacrifice. Why? Because it is God's way to sacrifice. How did we get into a right relationship with our creator? Through his sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory... In other words, that's what happened when we responded by faith to God's grace, the death and resurrection of Jesus. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. The word means sacrifice. Jesus is my example. Jesus sacrificed for us whereby God might use us greatly. You see, Jesus accomplished every one of his goals. Jesus achieved what he set his sights on, but he didn't stop there. He made it possible for you and I to be used of God as well. Jonathan and Paul, the two examples I've given you, they were just imitating Jesus, quite frankly. Look, three quick things and I'll quit. Number one, sacrifice is an opportunity to glorify God. When you sacrifice for someone else, you glorify God. When I achieve something, I glorify myself. But when I sacrifice that someone else might achieve, I glorify God. Sacrifice is an opportunity to encourage others. That's number two. Man, I can't tell you how many people encouraged me by their sacrifice. Starting with my parents. I have coaches in high school and college. Professors in high school and college. Businessmen and women I've worked for in the past, church leaders that I still stay in contact with. Why? Because I know that whatever I may have accomplished in this life, I owe so much of it to them because they encouraged me. And number three, sacrifice is never ignored by God, it's never overlooked. It's God's way to sacrifice, and sacrifice always leads to the blessing. Mother Teresa, as you probably well know, spent her life working with the poorest of the poor in India. She was once asked, how do you handle all the suffering? How do you deal with the death, the filthiness, the disease? How do you get up every morning and go at it again? And here's how she responded. She said, every person I bathe and every person I bandage And every person that I care for, I look into their face and I visualize the faith of Jesus Christ and I do it for him. Mother Teresa understood. She sacrificed for strangers. Jonathan got it and he gave up his throne for God's anointed king. Paul was totally on board because he believed to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, how about you? How about you? You may achieve everything that you set out to accomplish, but hear me, other people even more accomplished than you will tell you that if you reach your goal but help no one else to reach theirs, (laughs) it's not nearly as rewarding as you thought. So I'm encouraging every parent, every person of authority, every man and woman of influence, every young and older person alike, there are those around you Through whom you might encourage. There are those around you, you can help get them to the goal. Because as an achiever, maybe you just needed to be reminded today, not all about you, it's about others. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for such an obvious example throughout Scripture of personal sacrifice on behalf of you and others. Father, help us live our lives with that mindset. Make us patient when we need to be patient. God, make us kind and compassionate when we need to take a breath and slow down a little bit. Don't let us get so gung-ho about achieving or reaching our goals that we fail to realize there are those that you've placed right beside us that we can help. Pray all of this, Father, because of the one who helps us the most, the friend that sticks closer than any brother, the risen son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.